For many decades, the U.S. government, including the CIA, has had a close tie to right-wing Islamic governments and movements. And at the same time, during these same decades, the U.S. government has helped fan the flames of hatred and bigotry towards Muslim people. What explains this apparent contradiction? We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to this week's episode of The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Nazia Kazi. She is a scholar and educator, a professor of anthropology at Stockton University. She's the author of the book, Islamophobia, Race and Global Politics, which has been recently re-released with a new edition from Roman and Littlefield. Dr. Kazi, welcome back. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Well, thank you so much. You were one of our first guests on the Socialist Program more than two years ago. We'll have you sooner than the next two years. We're very, very honored you're able to join with us. Your research is so important about the, the phenomena of Islamophobia, its roots, its real roots, how it's been mischaracterized and misinterpreted by people all across the political spectrum. But I want to start with the upcoming anniversary of the U.S. invasion, the shock and awe invasion of Iraq, an invasion that took the lives of perhaps a million Iraqis, a million Iraqis who would not have died had it not been for this war. This was George W. Bush and Dick Cheney's neocon war, but not theirs alone. And that war, of course, came just you know two years after the September 11th terrorist attacks that took down the World Trade Center towers and a plane flew into the Pentagon. One of the remarkable things about your research with younger people who were too young, either at September 11th or at the time of the U.S. invasion of Iraq, is how they remember or how they've been taught about the event. They remember certain things, certain true things. They also remember things that are not true, meaning they've been spoon-fed falsehoods. Let's just talk a little bit about that research because it says so much about what people in the United States think or what they've been told to think. Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that question because, you know, I think most of us know at this point that we sort of remember September 11th with a really peculiar slogan that is never forget. And of course, around the world, not just in the U.S., there are memorial sites dedicated to remembering the attacks of 9-11-2001. And for me, I've been in the classroom for many years, teaching about the war on terror, American racism, and Islamophobia. And one thing I came to learn through my years of pedagogy was that a number of my students had really interesting understandings of the events of September 11th. So what I did was I undertook sort of a systematic study of people who were too young to remember the September 11th attacks. And I asked a bunch of questions about what they were taught, either in their classrooms or in culture and the media about the attacks. And my findings were really striking. So on the one hand, I find that they have a very sharp recollection of certain things. For instance, the number of Americans who died on September 11th, 2001, 2,997. They know that number like the back of their hand. A number of my respondents said they knew that the first responders who carried out the rescue missions suffered respiratory ailments and had to seek, you know, compensation for these damages. So in other words, they have a very crisp recollection of American suffering that came out of the attacks of September 11th, 2001. But what happened when I asked my respondents who the perpetrators of the 9-11 attacks were? Now, here's some really interesting things came out. For instance, a number of my respondents suggested that Saddam Hussein or the country of Iraq were responsible for 9-11. Now, of course, this is not only a country that had nothing to do with 9-11, 
but that Saddam Hussein was actively opposed to the forces of al-Qaeda. Some of my other more bizarre responses indicated Palestine or Pakistan as responsible for 9-11. And perhaps the most bizarre one that I saw with some frequency was that ISIS was responsible for September 11th. And the reason this is truly laughable, if it weren't so terrifying, is that ISIS actually emerged as a response to the brutal and illegal invasion of Iraq that you mentioned at the top of the show in 2003. So for my respondents to suggest that ISIS was responsible illustrates precisely this kind of national forgetfulness, this amnesia that is perhaps, as we can discuss in our conversation today, perhaps a, a necessary ingredient for American imperialism, that a, a forgetful population is the only kind that can exist when a country is carrying out the kinds of acts that were carried out, not only during the war on terror, but in the decades that came before. As one of the organizers of the Answer Coalition, Act Now to Stop War and End Racism, and we formed three days after September 11th, and we pulled the movement together and we organized a demonstration 18 days after September 11th, at a time when George W. Bush's approval rating was sky high and people were basically down with whatever the government was gonna do, we organized a protest against war and racism and, and 25,000 people came out. And that was a big deal because nobody thought, none of, most of the liberals and even some of the radical socialists and anarchists refused to join with us at that time because they said now is not the time to demonstrate. Either they were afraid to demonstrate, they were afraid of repression, they were afraid that this enraged public opinion would be directed against them. There were a lot of reasons not to demonstrate but we did demonstrate and we sort of began what emerged eventually as a very massive anti-war movement. I'm saying that because September 11th was really an inflection moment, not only for the public at large, not only for US foreign policy, it certainly inaugurated a new foreign policy. And for Muslims around the country, and I know you were living in Chicago at the time, and like millions, literally millions of Muslim Americans People were getting ready for blowback against the Muslim community, holding people responsible collectively. So there was this rising resistance, both within the Muslim community, by resistance I mean fear and sort of getting ready, trying to protect the community. And for those of us who were not Muslims but anti-racist, we were like highlighting the fact that Islamophobia was a racist, you know, sort of dagger pointed not only at Muslim communities and Arab communities and South Asian communities, but against the idea of unity, the idea of equality between people. So there was a movement against Islamophobia that took place by those who were progressive, but there was also a misunderstanding about the roots of this Islamophobia because the U.S. government, which was fanning its flames, at the same time was cooperating and had been cooperating with right-wing Islamic governments and movements, and not just for a couple of years, but for many decades. And this gets to the heart of your research. You have a new book coming out, but let's just talk about the seeming contradictoriness of the US government position on Muslims. People thought there was a war against Muslims, but at other times the US used Muslims to go to war for other purposes. Let's just talk about this in a historical perspective and a materialist perspective in terms of understanding the roots of Islamophobia and also how the U.S. government deals with Muslim peoples. Yes, thank you for the question. Okay, so let's take a few examples. Uh, for instance, we might think of Khalid al-Masri, a German citizen who was abducted and turned over to the CIA in 2003 and then sent to a black site. Now, after September 11th, the CIA constructed a chain of black sites, which are basically secret off-the-books prisons, in which it carried out interrogations, which quite often involved torture. Now, Khalid al-Masri was one such person who was strip-searched, beaten, sodomized, subjected to all kinds of torture by the CIA at this black site. Now, eventually he would go on a hunger strike and it would catch the attention of the ACLU and that would force the agency to admit that he had been mistakenly imprisoned, as had been countless detainees, not just at Guantanamo Bay, but around the world. 
during these years of the war on terror. So there you could say, okay, wow, this seems remarkably anti-Muslim. This seems remarkably Islamophobic, as were many things that happened in these early years of the war on terror. The CIA working with the NYPD to surveil and spy on the Muslim population. Of course, the torture and false imprisonment that occurred at Guantanamo Bay, the Patriot Act, the special registration program or NCRs that forced Muslim migrants to register and get fingerprinted. Of course, the Muslim ban that emerged years later under Donald Trump. But here's the thing. If we take a broader view of history, and then we take these obviously anti-Muslim practices of the war on terror and compare it to what came decades before, the story becomes a little more complicated. In fact, what history shows us is that the U.S. national security state, so the CIA, and the U.S. military apparatus, the State Department, and the Pentagon, have often sanctified Muslims and Islam as much as it has demonized them. We might even go so far as to say that at particular moments in history, the CIA has authored or sponsored the authorship of versions of Islam that many Americans would now call extremist or fundamentalist or perhaps right-wing. So what I want to argue and what I hope to show in my next book is that actually if we keep a focus on what serves the interests of the ruling class, what serves capital, then it becomes clear that the U.S. foreign policy establishment will ally with any forces. Those could be a bourgeois democracy. Those could be an Islamist theocracy. And actually, we ought to include that in our understanding of Islamophobia, rather than assuming that Islamophobia is this kind of uniform, global, anti-Muslim sentiment. We should include in it the ways in which the U.S. has at times sponsored key elements of right-wing global Islam. And I hope we can get into that in our discussion today. Yeah, that's important because at the end of World War II, Nazia, there was a rising tide of revolution in Asia, in the Middle East, in Africa, everywhere. The, the old colonial empires were basically in ruins, only the United States. The United States was the only capitalist country that came out of the war, I mean the major capitalist countries, the imperialist countries, that came out of the war intact. Its cities were not laying in smoldering ruins like you know the capitalist countries of Europe or Japan. And so at that time, when revolution was rising, the main goal of U.S. foreign policy was to make sure the communists didn't take over, that they didn't take over in France and Italy and Europe, but they wanted to make sure they didn't take over in China, in Korea, in Vietnam, in Indonesia, which of course, as everyone says, is the largest Muslim country, and it is. And in the Middle East, you had the rising tide, not only of communism, but pan-Arabism, the phenomena of Nasser in Egypt, where there was, at least for a time, the left, the broader left, bourgeois nationalism, pan-Arabism, and communism were, at times, in unity against imperialism and against colonialism. During that period, the U.S. was actually very much integrated into and promoting the development of political Islam as a counterpoint to communism. Yeah. Let's take, for instance, Iran in 1953. So I'm sure many of your listeners, you've covered it on your show, are familiar with Operation Ajax, which was the CIA program to overthrow the government of Mohammad Mossadegh in Iran. Now, Iran obviously had been an oil-rich country, and it was under British Petroleum. At the time, it was the Anglo-Iranian oil company that was extracting vast amounts of oil wealth from Iran. Now, under Mohammad Mossadegh, there was a move to nationalize Iran's oil reserves. And this was at the precise moment where the U.S. had achieved its sort of superpower status following World War II. So as you've covered on your show, what happened was a CIA coup, right, overthrowing Mohammad Mossadegh. But what I think a lot of your listeners might not know is the key role of religion and Islamic practice in fomenting this coup. So the CIA literally paid protesters to go into the streets of Iran and throw rocks at mosques to make it seem like Mossadegh was anti-Islam. 
that the U.S. sponsored religious mullahs, Islamic leaders, to help them in their overthrow of Mohammed Mossadegh. So nowadays, when you hear you know the talking heads in the U.S. lamenting the fact that Iran is this religious theocracy, this kind of history is really crucial, that the U.S. actually had no problem with the religious elements in Iran when they were helping to overthrow someone who had done something like nationalize the oil reserves of Iran, a move that would have, of course, benefited the people of Iran. And we can say this for countless locations. So you mentioned Indonesia. And it's true, you will hear this reminder, you know, Indonesia is the world's most populous Muslim nation. Now, for my first book, when I was researching Muslim multiculturalism in the U.S., I found that Muslim organizations were quick to issue this reminder. Indonesia is the world's most populous Muslim country. And it's true. But I think the reason they issue this reminder is to break down stereotypes about Muslims being only Arab or only South Asian. And I think it would be really interesting if there was as much awareness about Indonesia's Muslim demographics. I wish there was as much awareness about its political history. So after its independence from a brutal Dutch colonialism. There was a remarkable progressive movement that swept the country. Indonesia had one of the largest communist parties in the world at the time. And there were robust women's movements, workers' union movements, etc., that swept the country. Now, of course, this was a huge threat to business interests in the country. And as the CIA was pursuing those business interests or sort of helping the ruling interests, the ruling class of the U.S. pursue those interests, it worked to overthrow the progressive government of Indonesia, which was not actually a communist government. Under Sukarno, he sought to sort of mix Islamic influence, communist influence, and nationalist influence, which were three very prominent movements in the country at the time. Now, the CIA played all kinds of dirty tricks to topple Sukarno. And when I say dirty tricks, I perhaps mean that literally. So the CIA found a Sukarno body double and made a fake pornographic tape that it wanted to leak. And it thought by leaking this in an observant Muslim country, by portraying Sukarno as, you know, a philanderer, they could topple his rule. And I know that sounds really remarkably fratty, but in my research on the CIA, I find it it's par for the course. The right-wing Islamist movements of Indonesia were key allies for the U.S. in this machination. And one thing I want to make clear is that the left in Indonesia at the time also had huge segments that were observant Muslims. So it's not a question of religion alone. It's a question of how the left-leaning ambitions of practicing Muslims around the world were squashed, were deliberately squashed by the CIA's partnership with and at times authorship of right-wing versions of Islamic practice. So it would be these right-wing elements in Indonesia that would help Suharto then come to power. And what happened under Suharto? Well, we saw that Indonesia was basically turned into a sweatshop for the United States and for multinational corporations. And this was hailed by the U.S. Time magazine called the Suharto takeover the West's best news for years in Asia. It was just a few years ago that Mitt Romney reminded us that what the U.S. did in Indonesia was help move it toward modernity. So the genocide, the purge that took place under Suharto was really celebrated by the U.S. And it, yes, it was an anti-communist purge, but a number of people that were caught up, imprisoned, and tortured under Suharto with U.S. support were often not even politically active in any way. It was really a blanket genocidal purge that unfolded. So religion was key here. And I think we ought to remember how religion, Islam, but also Christianity and all forms of religiosity were a key tool that was instrumentalized by the U.S. during the Cold War. You know, it was John Foster Dulles who said, you know, there are two kinds of people in the world, those who are Christians and support free enterprise, and then the others. Now, for those of us who have studied the war on terror, we know that it reminds us of Bush's statement, you're either with us or with the terrorists. But it's clear that religion was sort of this key element in the Cold War. The U.S. was terrified, for instance, that there would be a Catholic left. And there was. We know about liberation theology. But the U.S. was equally terrified that there might be a Muslim left. 
And there was, you know, the country of South Yemen was the world's only Arab socialist country up until 1990. And South Yemen had a brand of Marxism that aimed to inculcate ideas of Islam into its Marxist practice, which I find really interesting and oft forgotten. Indeed, these are very, very important facts. In the case of Indonesia, again, just for our audience, it was 1965 when the U.S. finally succeeded in toppling Sukarno. There's the movie, which is not really very adequate, The Year of Living Dangerously, about this. But a million people died, at least. A million. The rivers ran red with blood. Literally, I mean literally. I'm not just overusing the word literally, as people frequently do. It was that kind of a massacre. And so the U.S. is aligned against Sukarno, who's a nationalist, a progressive, one might call him a bourgeois nationalist, but an anti-imperialist. He had an alignment with the Indonesian Communist Party. The Indonesian Communist Party is completely destroyed. And also, from the point of view of China's foreign policy, this was a very, very big impact because Sukarno in Indonesia, a giant country, was China's principal ally in that part of the world. So that happened. Now, since we mentioned China, Nazia, I've heard you talk in other interviews about how the U.S. supported the Muslims, so-called, in China against the communists in 1949. I mean, right now, for the last couple of years, as the United States has embarked on this anti-China crusade, this consensus position that the U.S. must prepare for conflict, including major power conflict, possibly military conflict with China. The U.S. has been highlighting certain struggles in China. Hong Kong was going to be the struggle for freedom and democracy. Taiwan had to retain its independence. And for the Muslims in Xinjiang, in the western part of China, the U.S. says the Chinese government is guilty of genocide and that it's cracking down and depriving Muslims of their identity. So here again, both in 1949 and today, 70 years later, the U.S. is not only attacking Muslims and creating Islamophobia some places, also using the defense of Muslims as the pretext for a very reactionary anti-communist, and in the case of China, completely false agenda. I mean, I think you're pointing to a really important history. You say 1949 is when we have evidence of the U.S. basically agreeing to send all kinds of support to Muslim anti-government elements in China. So this is like a key piece of context for where we are now. Now, let's remind our viewers and listeners that China shares a very strategic border with Afghanistan. And there's also a lot of resources in Western China and in Afghanistan that are crucial for the world economy and for the U.S. So when we think about the Uyghur population in China, it's really important that we think contextually. So for instance, if Uyghur separatists were doing in the United States what they have done in China, well, we've seen what the U.S. has unleashed against forces of Islamist separatism. So it becomes pretty clear that when the U.S. sheds these sort of big crocodile tears about the Muslim minority population of China, that it's really just one in many tools it uses to create this anti-China sentiment in the U.S. And again, going back to what I see in the classroom, I know that students are coming out of their high school classes having been taught that China is an authoritarian government, that China violates human rights. Again, these are students who don't know that who carried out the September 11th attacks, but they have been taught this history. So I think, you know, what we need to be really clear about is that the U.S. has made clear that it is gearing up for what it calls major power conflict. And that would be a confrontation perhaps with Russia. That could be a confrontation with China. And it will use whatever tools it has in its arsenal, including appealing to, you know, the hearts and minds of people who are concerned about the rights of Muslims. So when we have this larger context of imperialism, and resources and the material interests of the United States, you know, it becomes a little bit easier to call BS when we see it. Yes, indeed. In 1999, well, in 1995 and 1999, the U.S. 
started bombing the socialist government of Yugoslavia. After the Soviet Union fell in the socialist camp in Eastern and Central Europe, those governments also fell in a counter-revolution. There was one government that still stood that had a socialist revolution after World War II, and even during World War II, and that was the Yugoslav government. And the U.S. went to war against the Yugoslav government and dropped 28,000 bombs and missiles on the country between the end of March and early June 1999. And all of the bombs, and they were dropped by NATO, by the way, which again invaded Afghanistan, you know, in 2001. The bombs dropped by NATO were done on behalf of the Kosovar Muslim minority people in a Serbian province, a province of Serbia called Kosovo. And the Kosovos were Muslims, where most of the Serb population were not Muslims. They were Orthodox Christians. And this struggle or this potential animosity between peoples and religions had been ever present in the Balkans and in Yugoslavia. And the socialist government did everything when it came to power to build multinational unity, unity for the Croatians and Montenegrins and Serbs and Kosovars and the other, and the Bosnians. And then when it came time to break up Yugoslavia, when the U.S. felt, okay, Soviet Union's gone, there's no Red Army anymore, we can destroy Yugoslav and Yugoslav resisted, it was the, the freedom or the rights of Muslim minority peoples in Yugoslavia that was the pretext. Again, this is at the same time or just prior to the U.S. unleashing this Islamic seeming war against Muslims two years later after the September 11th attacks. Again, a seeming contradiction, but a contradiction that's explainable. It is very explainable when you understand the workings of imperialism, when you understand the workings of global capitalism. You know, I'll remind our viewers that there was the AMCOM Lib, the American Committee for Liberation organization, which basically had its explicit task as of organizing emigres from the Soviet Union who were against the Soviet Union. So AMCOM Lib worked with Muslims from the southern rim of the Soviet Union to sort of intensify and exploit their anti-communism to work against the Soviet Union. A name we should all know is, of course, Zbigniew Brzezinski, who is in the Carter administration. I know people joke, you know, people say Bush did 9-11. Well, I say Carter did 9-11 because it was Jimmy Carter who began funneling weapons and funding to the Afghan Mujahideen. And this was under advisement from Brzezinski himself, right? So when Brzezinski begins pouring money into the Afghan Mujahideen, and this was largely to provoke the Soviet Union into involvement in Afghanistan, he was asked about the religious leanings of these Mujahideen. And he said, well, what do you think is more important in world history? A few overexcited Islamists or the liberation of Central Europe and the end of the Cold War? So there you have someone saying the quiet part out loud, which is once again the point that you're making, which is when convenient for the goals of U.S. capital, Islamists can just as easily be sanctified as they can be villainized. And this is the story that should be central to our understanding of the war on terror. One of the things that people today who are a little bit younger or, or a lot younger won't know is how much the U.S. actually did to finance, to arm, and to become the propaganda arm for the so-called Mujahideen in Afghanistan, which then ultimately morphed into the Taliban, ultimately morphed into Al-Qaeda. You know, the U.S. was there when, in 1978, when the Afghan revolution happened, Brzezinski and the Carter administration and the CIA began what was at that point the largest CIA operation ever, biggest, most well-financed. And we were all told, people in the United States were told, Osama bin Laden is a freedom fighter. Dan Rather, you know, dressed up as like an Islamic garb, and he was the CBS anchor and traveled with the Mujahideen. American reporters would go and meet with Osama bin Laden. They would have exclusive interviews. He was, you know, he was a poster child for freedom against the communists. And what were the communists doing? What were the communists doing? They were helping the communist government in Afghanistan, the socialist government, was helping or insisting that girls in the countryside, not just in Kabul, but in the countryside, 
be able to go to school. They were insisting that workers have the right to form unions. They were insisting that the feudal-type landed aristocracy that worked with the rural mullahs be disempowered and that landless peasants be given land. And so the U.S. used these forces, the ones that we now went to war against in the so-called war on terror, as the tool to destroy a government in Afghanistan, which, by the way, even though it said it was a socialist government and the people undoubtedly considered themselves Marxist, their political program was just the basic elementary democratic rights of a country emerging from feudalism or semi-feudalism. So what you're speaking about is, of course, Operation Cyclone. And, you know, I think it was really interesting that after the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan in 2001, Osama bin Laden escaped from the country. And he escaped through a really complex network of underground tunnels. Well, those tunnels had been built during this period you're talking about, by the CIA. And the reason Osama bin Laden had such an intimate understanding of this tunnel network was because he had been partnered with the forces of the CIA, the Pakistani intelligence agency, to fight the forces that you're speaking about at the time. So it would, it would be a really interesting moment in 2011 when Osama bin Laden was killed and there was basically a block party outside of the White House. People were waving American flags and drinking beers and chanting. And one of the chants people were yelling in the streets after Osama bin Laden was killed was CIA, CIA. And again, when we're thinking about this, never forget this kind of amnesia. I think it's really remarkable that Americans could chant CIA in front of the White House after bin Laden had been killed with no sense of irony that the CIA had created and financed and bankrolled the Afghan Mujahideen and had created the very forces that would then fly planes into American buildings on September 11th. So yes, Operation Cyclone was this CIA project to funnel weapons and funding and support to the Afghan Mujahideen. But there was more than that. One of the things I find really remarkable is the school books program that the CIA had. It worked with a professor, I believe, at the University of Nebraska to make books for Afghan school children, teaching them things like J is for Jihad, basically teaching them the tenets of Islamism and how it could be used to sort of fight the godless communists. And these school books remain in circulation today because the Afghan people have such a difficult time accessing school material. So, you know, when we think about Islamism, we have to really ask where its roots are and, you know, who the sponsor of it is. You know, so it's really interesting for me to think about what you're talking about, which is, you know, Osama bin Laden and his allies being called freedom fighters, perhaps by, you know, Ronald Reagan. At the time, you know, when Dan Rather, who seemed to be almost like a faithful stenographer for U.S. empire, would report about how, you know, the evil Soviets were bombing these defenseless Afghan people. And he would rarely mention the fact that the Mujahideen were receiving huge amounts, vast amounts, at that point, the largest CIA covert operation yet from the U.S. They were well armed. And so, you know, and I also think it's really important since we're sitting here in the U.S. to think about the role of drugs and heroin in this operation. One of the motivations for the U.S. involvement in Afghanistan was to basically provoke the Soviet Union into an unwinnable war, the kind that the U.S. had suffered such a crushing defeat in Vietnam in. And as we know, so many American soldiers returned from Vietnam addicted to drugs, often as a way to medicate through the trauma of war. And really, with the hopes of inflicting a very similar thing on the Soviet Union, the U.S. armed the Afghan Mujahideen. So to sort of get the Soviets their own Vietnam. And part of this was drugs. Part of this was heroin production in Afghanistan with the hopes that it would then enter the veins of you know, Soviet soldiers and give them a taste of what the U.S. had suffered in Vietnam. We're talking about how the CIA and U.S. imperialism, basically the capitalist class and its national security state with all of its different agencies and iterations, the Pentagon, CIA, NSA, not to mention the media, and it doesn't have to be state-run media, it could be corporate-owned media that's heavily influenced by the same national security state, how they essentially are manipulating Muslims or 
feelings about Muslims in a way that serves their interests. And so if we have a materialist rather than a non-materialist assessment of what causes racism or what causes bigotry, these obvious contradictions help really help us get to the core of what the issue is. So we have a situation where at one moment, the United States says, you know, we want to use right-wing Islamic movements to topple socialist governments because their goal then is to topple socialist governments in Afghanistan. After September 11th, Nazia, there was this wave of hysteria against Muslims in America as if they were all guilty somehow, and being a Muslim made you guilty. And so at that moment, people are taught hate and fear Muslims and make Al-Qaeda, which the United States created, then sort of the focus of this hatred and this bigotry, but it sort of splashes out and covers all Muslims. Now, the reason I, I want to mention it is it's not just about feelings or consciousness or thoughts. It's also about, if we want to get to the root of it, like what's also going on after September 11th? In the middle of this hatred now of Muslims, we love the Muslims, now we hate the Muslims, the U.S. was also reorganizing the nature of the national security state and especially the surveillance state in a way that would be very, very detrimental to the people's rights to speak out, the rights to assemble, the right to protest, the right to be involved in dissent. And that, of course, benefits corporate America, which is, of course, the class that doesn't want people protesting. So you have, in the case of after September 11th, Muslims are the target. So the Patriot Act is passed. The national security state is reorganized with what's called fusion centers. These are institutions all over the United States, kind of quiet in the corner, but they unite intelligence agencies like the FBI, state police, local police, and corporate executives into an intelligence sharing operation under the guise of anti-terrorism. And you've talked, and I want you to explain more, that in the context of this, how this anti-Islamic sentiment in the creation of a new stage or new organization, new level of organization in the national surveillance state, it's not really mainly anymore against Muslims. It even is used and was used, as we can prove, against peaceful protesters in Occupy, Occupy Wall Street, and in other places where indigenous people are trying to stop pipelines coming through and destroying their lands and their water. Let's just talk again. Again, this is the manipulation of the issue of Muslims and Islam or Islamophobia has at its roots a material sort of connection or a material basis. Right. And this is a huge problem with how we typically are taught to think about race and racism in the United States. We're taught to think about race and racism as a matter of identities, as a matter of intolerance. If you go to a university in the U.S., you will find workshops or lessons to be offered on, you know, what a microaggression is, how to check your privilege. These kinds of things are the dominant modes of understanding race and racism. In other words, they take a decidedly attitudinal focus. It's this kind of idea that racism is about negative attitudes and perceptions and prejudices. When it comes to the question of Islamophobia, this is really interesting because I think a lot of efforts to fight Islamophobia have focused on explaining Islam to the West. Why do some women wear a hijab? What is Ramadan and why do Muslims fast during the month of Ramadan? Instead of looking at the histories we've been trying to talk about today. And I think the histories we've been talking about today have a decidedly materialist focus. In other words, who profited from this? Who benefited from this? What guided U.S. foreign policy practices to shape global Muslim practice in the way that it did? So I think, you know, one of the problems in academia is you have Islamophobia studies over here in its silo. And then you have like the study of the U.S. national security state and foreign policy in another silo. And rarely do the two talk. And I think what we actually really need is the kind of conversation you're suggesting. One that reminds us that all forms of American racism need to have a material focus, need to be at the end of the day about how they protect the interests of the ruling class. I mean, you better be clear, you know, GAP, or Exxon, or any major multinational corporation has no problem with you learning about 
privilege or microaggressions or those kinds of things. But once we begin talking about the types of systemic realities we've been discussing today, it issues a real threat to these interests. You know, and so to your other point, I think it's really important to think about how the technologies of anti-Muslim racism in the U.S., the surveillance, the policing, the imprisonment, all of these things you've been talking about don't have neat borders around Muslim populations. The Department of Homeland Security, which formed, you know, as a response to September 11th, of course, has been primarily deployed at the U.S.-Mexico border against Latin American migrants. Now, I often ask my students, why do people from Latin America immigrate to the U.S.? And nine out of 10 times, their answer is for the American dream or, you know, for a chance at a better life for it because America is a land of opportunity. And never do they come into a classroom with an understanding of the era of American dirty wars. So for the histories that we've been talking about in the Muslim or the Arab world, very similar patterns unfolded across Latin America. The wave of migration from El Salvador to the United States follows a bloody civil war in which death squads were armed and trained by the United States. We know that a progressive government of Guatemala was overthrown by the United States by Chiquita, by the United Fruit Company's urgings. And so Homeland Security is used to beat down the forces of people who are trying to flee a kind of poverty and violence that is a direct result of U.S. intervention. You mentioned Occupy Wall Street. We can talk about that. But we also know, as you said, that counterterrorism forces have been deployed against Native American movements and the movement for Black Lives. So, you know, when we think about anti-Muslim racism, we ought to really also think about how its tentacles spread well beyond communities that are you know, narrowly defined as Muslim. Yeah, in the case of Occupy, I was working with files that had been received from the Partnership for Civil Justice. And this also happened, same thing happened, but even worse in the pipeline struggles of the indigenous people later. But, you know, we got through public records requests, the files about what the FBI and the fusion centers were doing with Occupy. They say in the, in the files, these are peaceful m movements. And then every little thing that's ever done in every encampment is chronicled, it's monitored, it's fed into a centralized national database. And eventually the Occupy encampments are shut down under the pretext of, of public health in December 2011. And there were hundreds of Occupy encampments. But it was under the authority of the fusion centers and these intelligence agencies, anti-terrorism authorities gained by the intelligence agencies aggregated power in the hands of the national security state after September 11th, presumably to go against Islamic extremists, but used against anybody who was disputing or objecting to parts of the, the capitalist class's political program or their economic agenda. Right. These are important things to keep in mind, especially as we are bombarded with efforts by the national security establishment to rebrand itself. It seems like every year or two, the CIA will, you know, create some kind of either a new logo or just a couple months ago, I saw that they had unveiled a statue of Harriet Tubman at their Langley headquarters. And we all remember, and if you haven't seen it yet from a couple summers ago, an ad that was put out by a CIA agent who talks about how, you know, she's Latinx and she's neurodivergent and she's so proud to work for this important agency. The national security state has a long history of operating in these ways in the U.S. Now, of course, the official task of the CIA is collecting intelligence on foreign activity, but that's hardly been what they've done. So our discussion today has highlighted all of the covert and overt foreign policy decisions they've made, including toppling governments, including meddling in elections, some of those elections even in places like Italy. And so these rebranding efforts are kind of necessary from the part of the agency because they need to provide some kind of gloss for their deep anti-democratic policy practices. I'd urge your listeners, if they get a chance to check out, you know, The Mighty Wurlitzer by Hugh Wilford or Joel Whitney's book, Finks, which show how the CIA has done all kinds of things like sponsor the Iowa Writers Workshop to make sure that our top novelists talk more about their feelings and the color of the sky than what's happening in politics. Sponsored the Boston Symphony Orchestra to make it seem like capitalism could produce as robust 
art and music as, you know, communism did, which they certainly did. And so when we think about the national security establishment, we have to think about all of these kind of soft power tactics that are used, that are used in our, to a sort of play on our ideas and our hearts and minds. I think it's really interesting, you know, that when I teach, my students typically know about MKUltra. This is one of the things that people know that, you know, the CIA experimented using drugs on various mind control tactics for the purposes of subduing our soldiers, for the purposes of interrogation, for all kinds of purposes. But then when you talk about the more recent workings of the national security state, you're somehow labeled a kind of conspiracy theorist. And I think there's a really interesting dissonance that we ought to look at there. Why can we understand that these very well-known instances of violent or anti-democratic practices were undertaken by the CIA, but we have trouble accepting the more recent ones that seem perhaps just as outlandish. And as we sort of move towards the end here, Nazia, I want to also just emphasize, and I know you've talked about it, I've heard you in other interviews talk about it, how the CIA and FBI, the Pentagon in particular, care a great deal about culture and a great deal about how people are getting culture. And some of the messaging is very, very subtle. You know, people sometimes think the CIA must, or the Pentagon must only have like, you know, Top Gun type movies, but they have all kinds of movies. Not that they didn't have a hand in Top Gun, but you've talked about how the Pentagon has a role in far-flung cultural and entertainment programming is from movies to Jeopardy. Anyway, let's just talk real quick about that because some of it people won't know. I mean, it started at the end of World War II or in the middle of World War II where the U.S. government, which did not have a permanent military machine, started to pay attention to war propaganda. Even famous movies like Casablanca, you know, the, the Pentagon had a role in that because they were trying to overcome the problem of American isolationism, of people who didn't want to participate in an overseas war. Lots of different ways that that started to emerge at the end of World War II. But now it's very, very, very important in terms of Hollywood productions and not just Hollywood. Let's just talk real quick about that. Yeah, both the Pentagon and the CIA are intimately involved with both Hollywood films and with television. But as you mentioned, you know, it can be something like an episode of Cupcake Wars. It can be like a, something like an episode of Jeopardy that gives a credit to the CIA. And as you said, yes, it's very obvious their involvement in films like Zero Dark Thirty or American Sniper or Top Gun. It's pretty clear that there's state involvement there. But when you think about the sort of banal involvement by the state into American entertainment media, it's really striking. It's the kind of thing that if China or North Korea were doing it, the American public would be told to be up in arms about it, right? But it is absolutely common practice in the U.S., especially where directors or filmmakers who might be cash-strapped can suddenly have access to state-of-the-art technology, to state-of-the-art, you know, helicopters and weaponry and special effects that the military or the CIA has access to if they just tweak this little part of their script. And it's a pretty interesting phenomenon we observe. And, you know, the same can be said about academia. People should look up Gabriel Rockhill's work on how theory academic research itself are often shaped in overt and covert ways by the interests of the national security state. And then it becomes clear that, you know, these claims about America's democratic principles are pure ideology. You know, they're American mythology. Right. And I want to just say a few concluding words, Nazi, and get your final thoughts. You know, if we think of capitalism as a class society where 1% or maybe it's half of 1%, are the dominant political and economic power. And then they have a state apparatus that enforces their rule, their class rule. You know, if 99% of the population turns against them, rises up against them, thinks that they're awful swindlers and thieves and crooks, and that they don't have legitimacy, it doesn't matter that the U.S. has 900,000 uniformed police officers or it has such a huge military, if 99% of the people or even 60% of the population turns against the government and denies its legitimacy, they become a real threat to the existing social and economic order. So having cops and prisons and the military is inadequate 
the way to control such a large part of the population, you have to control their ideas. And the way you control their ideas is, like if it was just a, a state-sponsored media, people would think, oh, that's the government talking. It's a state-sponsored media. So the intelligence services use myriad ways that disguise the fact that it is, in essence, the state and the, this tiny capitalist class that's really working overtime endlessly to influence the way we think. And the way liberals think, the way conservatives think, it doesn't matter whether you're, you vote Republican or vote Democrat. If you're not part of that 1%, you're vulnerable to having your ideas shaped by the ruling class that is trying to retain its control and realizes that there could be radical and revolutionary transformations because there's so much suffering in society. That's why I think what you're doing, the work that you're doing is actually critically important and perhaps the most important work of all. And one of the reasons why we have the socialist program, one of the reasons why we have breakthrough news, alternative views and our assessment of things has to go beyond the superficial so that we really get to the root of the problem. And I think that's what you are doing by getting to the materialist essence of the problems of Islamophobia and racism, it illuminates what the real problem is. And without knowing the real problem, we can't in any possible way understand what the real solution is. Anyway, with that said, I'll give you the final word. Yeah, thank you so much for those kind words. And, you know, I mean, I think when we're looking, sometimes we don't even have to look that deep. So with all of these debates in public discourse about whether or not the U.S. should cancel the trillions of dollars of student debt, it is really remarkable that high ups in the military establishment will come out and say, if we cancel student debt, it'll hurt military recruitment. In other words, they're saying it out loud that having a population riddled with debt without access to high quality, affordable education, that's one of the tools of American empire building. It's just really remarkable to me that such a statement can be uttered aloud and people aren't rioting en masse in the streets. I'm also reminded of, you know, the years of Occupy Wall Street, when I think it was either Goldman Sachs or Lehman Brothers that sent a letter to Mayor Bloomberg being like, look, this is a movement that is really worrying and needs to be put down. And of course, Michael Bloomberg was referring to the NYPD as his own personal army. And they certainly functioned like that during the Occupy Wall Street movement. So in other words, the ruling class has a very good sense of what their economic interests are. But the second the rest of us can collectively figure out what our interests are, uh, it's over for them. They are vastly outnumbered. So you're absolutely right to point to the role of people's consciousness in this kind of undertaking. So thank you for that. All right, we're going to leave it right there. That's Dr. Nazia Kazi, Professor Kazi's book, Islamophobia, Race and Global Politics, has been re-released with a new edition. Professor, thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.